their paths crossed like two hot wires. We are just about the friendliest folks you would ever want to meet. That's Bonnie. I'm sorry, I was looking for Maud. Everyone has the right to make an ass out of themselves. You can't let the world judge you too much. That woman, she took my car. This is Bonnie and Maud, the film podcast, with Xenia Yarosh and Eleanor Kagan. Light as a feather, stiff as a board. 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 Nice. Cool. You're listening to Bonnie and Maud. I'm Eleanor Kagan. And I'm Ksenia Yamosh. We have a bit of a spooky episode today <laughs> in the middle of spring. We're talking about the craft today. And I'm very excited to talk about the craft. And we have a special guest. We do. Uh, Miss Lyra Hill Hello. is joining us. You may have heard her previously on our cabaret episode from last year, and we're lucky to have her back again. Yes, Lyra uh, is a comic artist and illustrator and does this really cool show called Brain Frame um, that is a performative comics reading series. Uh, that has a lot of weird and awesome shit happening. Which is also wrapping up because you have two more shows left. Yes, two more in Chicago. So how else would you identify yourself if not a brain frame or <laughs> uh, I usually say I'm a, I'm a cartoonist and a filmmaker, a performer. Those are the top three. Yes. And then I get into, and then I usually say like organizer because a lot of what I do is organizing other art and hmm. kind of organizing collaborations between artists. Wonderful. Yeah. Filmmaker, you mentioned, and you have a short film coming out soon called Uzi's Party that we will uh, talk about a little bit later because it is thematically linked to mm-hmm. the craft. Yes. Um, and I'm really excited to talk about that. Good. And Uzi, the main character in the film, is named after Feruza Balk. Oh, uh, I noticed that. The star of The Craft. <laughs> yes. So, and other wonderful films. Yes, The Craft is a 1996 uh, film about uh, teen witches. And one of my favorite facts about The Craft is that they, were they quote, tried everything they could to earn a PG-13 rating, but ultimately the movie was slapped with an R rating for depicting teen girls practicing witchcraft. <laughs> Wow. Mm-hmm. That's all it took? Yeah. So, like, not the short skirts or the wrist cutting. Or, or the attempted rape. Yeah. Or the, yeah. Other violence. So, if you are of a certain age, you probably remember The Craft because it was one of the teen movies to watch. To get your mom to rent for you. If you could get your mom to rent The Craft for you at a sleepover, then you were doing something right. <laughs> Well, I have to confess that this was actually the first time that I watched it. I watched it this week um, with my husband, and yeah, it blew my mind. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't remember the first time I saw it, but I'm going to just say for the sake of uh, probability that it was at a sleepover, and I was with friends, and we definitely played Light as a Feather, Stiff as a Board afterwards. Um, Lyra, you have a more contentious relationship with this movie. Tell us about it. Yeah, it came out, and uh, I knew about it. I didn't watch it, and I was very upset that it existed because I was raised in a pagan tradition and uh, by witches and considered myself also to be one to this day. And when the craft came out, all of the girls around me turned to me for advice. <laughs> And uh, spells and tips, and it drove me nuts. Uh, I hated the Vogue, the witch Vogue in the 90s. I was surprised in the film how many different ways there were to dress all in black. Uh (laughs) A lot of different textures, always black. And how many different pairs of sunglasses that could look exactly the same, yet somehow have a slightly different tint to the lenses. Uh For the craft, they also hired a woman who was uh, Wiccan to act as a kind of a supervisor. I'm not going to say a spiritual supervisor, but perhaps um, in terms of some of the things that they say and some of the kind of conceits of the rituals are actually things that I would practice mm-hmm. in home, at home and in my community. And seeing them um, like kind of 
piecemeal in this really ridiculous, mm -hmm. uh, unsophisticated and irresponsible depiction was mm -hmm. uh, really bothered me. The, the relationship in the pagan community to the craft is, um, I think, also contentious. People were really pissed off and then some people were really excited because then it was cool and all these mm -hmm. young people were... Exposing it to a larger community. Yeah, exactly. And that's actually how I feel more now. I don't have nearly as much of a problem. I watched the film finally when I was a... God, I think my third year of college mm -hmm. is when I f finally watched the craft. And um, what inspired you finally, like picking up and watching? I was it? in a feminist film theory class, and I was writing a a paper about witches in Hollywood cinema. Mm -hmm. And that's when I watched a lot of movies for the first time, like Practical Magic, mm. um, Bell, Book, and Candle, which is a great film. Mm -hmm. uh, so I Married a Witch, which is a 1940s Veronica Lake mm -hmm. film. Um, and The Craft. Uh, also, The Witches of Eastwick, which is great. It's a great movie. Teen Witch? I didn't watch Teen Witch. Is that a movie or a television show? It's a movie. It's a movie. I've it, never seen it. It's a movie. Oh, yeah. I don't even know about that movie. I think it's like a witchcraft extra light. If, if cra uh, it's craft is witchcraft light, then it's uh, like a teen Cinderella story light. that uses becoming a witch as the transformation and like she also becomes really popular as a result. Oh, well, it has teen in the title. Yeah, I mean the yeah. extent of her magic is popularity and she helps her friend become so confident that she rap she has a rap battle. There's a rap battle in, in a movie? driveway with oh some popular kid. Yeah, I I think when I I don't remember the constraints of my essay, but I was trying to avoid, I think I was focusing on movies where the witchcraft was handled as like a real person. Mm -hmm. So I avoided Bewitched because I think that that's, and, and Bellknobs and Broomsticks where it's this mm. super light fantasy kind of element. I also avoided The Witches because The Witches is so much about witches being inhuman creatures mm -hmm. as opposed to real women with magic. Mm -hmm. Did you happen to watch The Worst Witch also starring Feruza Balk and Tim no. Curry? No. It's a movie I loved as a kid about um, a witch school pre-Harry Potter, but it was a boarding school for young up-and-coming witches. And as an all-girls? As an all-girls school, and Feruza Balk plays Mildred Hubble, who is kind of uh, clumsy and kind of gets herself into trouble, um, which, if I remember correctly, and I have not Wikipedia'd this, so this is all just what I'm maybe misremembering, but I rem she seems to have more power than the others, but that always gets her into trouble because she, you know, will try to turn a hat into a frog and then end up turning it into, like, a dinosaur. That doesn't happen in the movie, but, like, that, that caliber of things. Uh-oh. And Tim Curry comes by as, like, the grand wizard. Nice. It's a, it's a great movie. And she's, like, she's a baby. It's around the same time that uh, Feruza Balk did Return to Oz, yes. too, which yeah. is another favorite slash movie that scared the crap out of me as a kid. Huh. And another movie where, as in the craft, she she ends up in a um, mental ward. Yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, Return to Oz is great, though. I feel like it there's is. something about Feruza Balk's face. I mean, that that was sort of the centerpiece of the craft for me. Is just just a little twitch of her eyes and like like a grin that she does can be so frightening, like. She has such a huge expressive smile that takes over her whole face. But she can make it so sinister. Mm -hmm. I, and I, I would, I think, primarily call it a grimace mm -hmm. rather than a smile. Yeah. She is also in American History X as a like Nazi girlfriend. Oh, yeah. And she plays that role really, really well, too. She's so good at being scary. Yeah, she is. I actually was Googling a bit about her, and Feruza means turquoise in Farsi, and her father or her parents named her that because she has such bright blue eyes, which I guess contributes to her. Her eyes are very piercing. Yes, mm -hmm. contributes And it can be beautiful, but she also really knows how to twist it into something frightening. I do want to jump in here and say that um, it feels appropriate that we are actually recording this episode at the Brooklyn Public Library, um, but we are also surrounded by books. I think so there's a ton of magic in this building to begin with, and uh, if, you're, if you're wondering why you feel like you're in space right now, that's why. <laughs> I, I think of all the episodes, this would have been 
really appropriate to record in your bedroom. I know. Um, because so much <laughs> of the movies, like the key moments take place in these private spaces. Mm-hmm. If not a bedroom, then like, you know, they have like a meeting at a beach or like a little part of a forest. It's always like very intimate. Things that feel like girl spaces. Mm-hmm. And actually, Lyra, you touched on something earlier when you were uh-huh. describing your personal relationship with this movie um, of irresponsibility in magic, which is something that this movie definitely deals in but um were were there other instances that the craft kind of came up in your upbringing or in your social life that um were significant or deterred you from seeing the movie well i was very uh judgmental um as a young person of any media around witchcraft and especially when 99% of popular imagery about witches is, you know, this kind of monster, Mm -hmm. a a neutered monster, Um, and then a very violent history. The first film to, having the first film to celebrate witchcraft in a sense, and I think what it is about the craft is that uh, so many young women responded to it because there's a moment of celebration and power, but the film is, the film itself just like it, it hates that power at the end. And mm-hmm. the, um, the punishment for the girls is so extreme mm-hmm. that the, my, that's my main problem with the movie now. Um, I, can't, I can't really think of specific instances when it came up. It was just kind of part of this bigger culture that really pissed me off. Mm-hmm. There were all these books that came out at the time called Teen Witch or like Books of Spells or... I know I had one. Special tarot <laughs> card packages or, you know, and like New Age culture was coming about at the same time, which also pissed me off. People talking about crystals and candles and incense. Without really knowing what they actually were used for. Right, it was in vogue. And any time that something close to you becomes in vogue and something that feels very intrinsic to you, mm-hmm. like your personality and your upbringing. I mean, even um, kids wearing crosses just as a... Yeah. Just for aesthetic, I'm mm-hmm. sure... Well, Madonna might, well, kind of yeah, might be that whole imagery. offensive to people for whom that's meaningful and private. Right, so then people are wearing pentacles, and yeah. it's like, you don't know what you're talking about, and now you... And people would... when when I mean, I grew up in Northern California, so nobody mm-hmm. gave me really gave me shit for being pagan, mm-hmm. but... Uh, but it's already I, this French culture. And I got a lot of stupid questions. Mm-hmm. A lot. You know. What would people ask you? Oh, if I did spells, if I was made of wood, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> then, you know, every now and then a, a girl would approach me in seriousness and ask me for advice as to how to get into something more responsibly. And that just, I just didn't want to be that person. I didn't want to have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, that gives you a lot of responsibility. Yeah. It's like anybody coming up to somebody and saying, be my spiritual and religious advisor. Right. And that's not something to be taken lightly. Right. And if, you know, and if people ask, then people would ask me if I could do spells for them. And it's like, that is mm-hmm. so not what a spell even is. Like, I can't. Mm-hmm. I, and my, I mean, this is a deeper conversation, but my own relationship to my spiritual upbringing is distanced it, my upbringing was also very political because the, the community that I was raised in is like eco-activists, feminist, goddess religion. Mm-hmm. A lot of it was going to protests and people chaining themselves to big trees and things like that. And so, so much of my religious upbringing was tied to a sense of social and environmental responsibility. Mm-hmm. And then to, to have it be this like hot thing about being cool, powerful, and sexy and like doing stuff for yourself, mm-hmm. doing spells in your own self-interest, um, really rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah, that's one of the main criticisms about the craft that I have read about, um, is that the girls have so much power, and having the four of them together to complete the four corners of the compass, mm-hmm. um, I don't know whether that is steeped in a true, um, you know, a true concept or not, but... Um, they become so powerful, yet they use their powers to basically make their social lives better right. and kind of, I mean, in, well, in certain it, ways. It basically, the, get into that. I think the movie hits a peak when they um, sort of free themselves of their anxieties and um, the things that 
make their lives difficult, lives difficult. Like um, Nev, is it Neve or Nev Campbell? I've always said Nev, but so she plays Bonnie. Mm-hmm. And she has this skin disorder and she feels so self-conscious. She it can barely interact um, with people and the spell gets rid of this and she feels confident and like we're rooting for her i i use that word so much rooting yeah um i like hear it in every other episode but um it's positive I like we're that. happy to see her um be, be more confident and relieved right but then it turns where her confidence and her self-love turns into this like deep mm-hmm. offensive narcissism so right. each of the girls each of the four girls has the thing they want to overcome. So for for Bonnie, it's it's her scars. For um, Rochelle, who is a black girl amid a very sort of white, mm-hmm. posh, suburban Catholic environment, um, is the recipient of a lot of racism from a blonde white girl. And so she, her wish is more of for something to bad to happen to her bully rather than mm-hmm. to sort of exist in a non-racist community Mm -hmm. Um, well she she wants payback and it starts small enough and then it again like goes too far right where her bully starts so she her bully makes fun of Rochelle's hair um and then the bully who has long straight blonde hair her hair starts falling out and she has sores all over her head it's gross but you know the hair granted how much we Ksenia and I are interested in hair Uh, that conflict was really interested in me and mm -hmm. how their um their conflict was rooted pun not intended in having this um like difference in ethnic hair Mm mm-hmm um, and then Feruza Balk's character has a lot of domestic abuse issues. So And they're poor and live in a trailer. Exactly. So um, once they start doing spells together, um, her stepfather ends up having a heart attack and she and her mother inherit a bunch of money through the insurance. So there's like, again, we're like so happy for them and there's so much potential and like, we kind of wish the movie ended there. Yeah. Um, and Sarah, our, our protagonist, mm-hmm. her her wish is much more complicated. It's about wanting to love herself. I mean, the setup of the movie is she moves to this new town from San Francisco after she tried to commit suicide um, by slitting her wrists. And I, that is takes on you know certain importance in the movie, um, the way in which she went about doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she moves to LA and um, is living with her dad and her stepmom because her real mom died in childbirth. And her real mom, of course, is a real and natural witch, which is another thing that I hope to get into the concept of unnatural versus natural witchcraft. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so she kind of wishes for self or self love, tries to give a self love spell. So she feels better about her life. Mm-hmm. She, but it's she never really says that though. It's always it's again it's a revenge spell mm. because she likes this boy who rejects her, and then she puts a you know she takes a picture of him and puts a love spell on him. The same way that Rochelle very specifically asks for revenge on a specific person mm-hmm. instead of like you mentioned asking for a less racist environment or mm. for Sarah. Their wishes are directed against specific people right and they're all revenge spells yeah pretty much and for uh or nancy her Mm -hmm. character um it's it's implicit almost explicit in the film that she kills her stepfather by freaking out when he's hitting on her and then begins abusing her mother and Mm -hmm. she stares at him with her turquoise eyes and Mm -hmm. everything explodes in the kitchen and they lock gazes and then he dies he turns over Mm -hmm. um but you, you, I, I feel like the, the Nancy story, uh, I'm never really rooting for Nancy. Mm-hmm. Because what she asks for in the rituals is all the power of Menon, which is a made-up god. And uh, that's a ridiculous thing to ask for, of course, <laughs> as you know, anyone could assume. And it manifests in, in such a kind of monetary way. When she does get an apartment, it's almost entirely a joke about her ditzy mother wanting like a pink 
jukebox with only Connie Francis on it and like an <laughs> ugly orange couch. And um, I love that interaction where the mother says, I don't know, maybe it would play better as a clip, but <laughs> like, you haven't heard of, uh, the, what's her name? Connie, name? Francis. Connie Francis. Like, she's so good. And yeah. it's like this little glimpse of the side character, like, like that's what brings her joy until now we've just seen her running around the trailer and being so upset with this man who I don't know doesn't seem to have a job and like she seems to have a very difficult life as well but we just see that bit I mean all of the girls in the craft have difficult lives they're all dealing with real issues whether it's um, you know, racism or body image or suicide and depression or, um, you know, alcoholism and abuse, like they all deal with really real issues. And I, in a way, the movie treats them lightly, but I wonder if this is how teen girls envision dealing with such serious issues, kind of like wishing them away or wishing revenge on the people that remind them that they're dealing with these issues yeah um at one point it actually shows wrist cutting right like i remember looking away because i i couldn't handle it um i was sort of shocked by that like there's a lot of violence in it um the early on there's a man who was hit by a car and that's when the girls sort of realize that they have power when they're together. I don't know why that was <laughs> like... Kind of a logical <laughs> jump. But. Yeah. Um, and then, I don't know, I just... Uh, part of it, I think, is like the movie's sound is kind of crappy. So sometimes it just gets <laughs> so loud that I remember violence even when it's just like sound violence and people yelling at each other, like... There's a scene towards the end um, where uh, basically the three original witches turn on Robin, Robin Tunney, the new girl, Sarah, Sarah. Um, and they're just like hovering in her room, just like screaming at her to kill herself um, and telling her that she doesn't belong. And it's like, yeah, that, that's when the movie becomes about women creating violence against each other Mm -hmm. like they came together and they you know there's this very like girly moment where butterflies appear Mm -hmm. um and it's like oh we're witches and we can make beautiful things and then it becomes very dark and suddenly like why do they even turn on her that's what i don't understand like she she criticized them briefly for being too using their powers for self-serving purposes. Mm-hmm. So, but as, it's like a second and, and they then, want to kill her. <laughs> as Lyra was mentioning, there is a big scene in the middle of the movie where they do an invocation ritual on a beach and invoke Manon, who is mm-hmm. their, um, who is their god, who's a male god, which is interesting right. because the movie is so much about sisterhood and, and female power that it was interesting mm. that ultimately they're kind of deriving power and praying to this masculine figure. And also Manon is a woman's name in French. There's this great oh. movie called Manon of the Spring um, that is an awesome, it's a, I think that's the, uh, the sequel the first movie that I am blanking on the name of right now, but Manon is like a, it's a French woman's name. So I was just, I was like, huh, that's weird that they named their male deity. There's a, there's a nod to like a, to a, um, pre-gender element to Manon when Nancy says God created, or man created God, this is older than that. But then they still refer to him in a, in the masculine Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, maybe to them it's just automatic, like they see men having power. Um, And so they want to have masculine power. Like that seems, I I think that's the jump. Mm -hmm. The the scene that you were mentioning, Ksenia, where uh, Nancy criticizes them for their self-involvement and the kind of, the, the addictive turn of the power that they're, 
uh, taken Sarah. on. Sarah, sorry. Yeah. Sari, Sari, Sarah criticizes them, and then Nancy turns it into a big fight where she says, oh, do you want out of the coven? Do you want out? Mm -hmm. yeah, tell me yes or no right now. Um, and I was watching this last night, uh, thinking about that moment and how so much of the dynamic that drives them insane is really just the dynamic of their group of friends and the power of a um, of a strong, angry, bitter female who's like a um, she is a what is it called when you run a country, a fascist country? A dictator. She's a, yeah, she's a despot or a dictator. She mm -hmm. has a big chip on her shoulder the whole movie, mm -hmm. and it's unclear whether it's because she has been treated she's been like slut shamed the whole time you know mm -hmm. um when sarah first gets to the school and she meets chris who's the like love interest that she casts a love spell on later after he disses her you know he's like oh nancy she's such a slut and then nancy refers to herself as a slut like this concept mm -hmm. of sexual promiscuity is um has kind of turned her into this demon almost the, the mm -hmm. you know the the mean outcast girl at school but she's the leader of this trio yeah. and sarah even without intending to is infringing on it and i think in addition uh, what you were saying in terms of slut shaming sarah really manages to walk the line so she's a witch and maybe this ties in with like natural witch but she is still there's like a purity to her like she probably is a virgin like that's sort of the vibe that is given off by the character and she, she's blonde yeah it's like the good witch versus bad witch and even though sarah doesn't want to take over the coven um Feruza's character feels threatened by her because of her natural goodness do you lyra did you have any feelings about the concept of like natural witchhood versus uh, powers that are sort of harnessed and um, you know practiced like channeled. the uh, channel like the other three girls have done yeah I mean I think Ksenia I think you're absolutely right that for me I just I think it's ridiculous like that's my my feeling literally but then as it serves the film I do see it as just a way of um, giving her character excuses or backing up the goodness of her character, giving her, she, in a, she's, she's the orphan, essence, like her mother orphan. is dead. She's relieved of responsibility because her powers are natural. Mm -hmm. Whereas the other three girls have chosen to take on this thing. They kind of convince her to come into it. Mm -hmm. She has to deal with it through communing with her dead mother in the end is what saves her. It's all very much a like it's a feminine line as opposed to dealing with, um, you know, Nancy dealing with the death of her stepfather and then being mm -hmm. a slut at school, um, and it yeah I think it's just a, another way to separate her character and kind of give her excuses. The, the whole film really, I was thinking about this uh, part of the reason that I didn't like this movie is not only because of its relation to witchcraft and my own upbringing and the kind of social explosion around the film, but the fact that I never identified with groups of girls that operate under this system. And any kind of film that talked about that, that played women off of each other and ended up concluding that nothing good can come of girls trying for power rubs me the wrong way. Uh, we were, you sent us that article of an oral history of the craft. It's and from the New Inquiry, a really good online magazine. Oh, cool. It was, I liked reading that a lot. And one of the comments was from a woman who pointed out that group dynamic and said that that was what actually helped her identify with the film. Mm -hmm. And I would say that that is the opposite of my experience. Mm -hmm. I, I don't identify with like a, a social group with a despot leader. And I thought about that a lot when I was a young woman. I, I like kind of avoided making female friends because of those types of dynamics. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I mean, yeah, I, I felt like an outsider because, yeah, that just never naturally happened to me. Like, all these movies would show that, yeah, once you were in high school, eventually you would have a circle of friends. And I knew kind of individuals from different clicks but I don't remember like having a circle and certainly not a primarily female one like most of my friends were male 
I had a similar experience to you guys. I mean, I never really had a tight circle of women growing up in, in middle school and in high school, although in middle school a little bit, there were situations where there were women, I'm women, I mean, we were in eighth grade, we were 13. <laughs> there were um, girls who were sort of would exert their social power and responsibility over you a little bit more in a Nancy esque way but not quite to the that extent where it would kind of feel like well if i want to be quote unquote popular i'm just going to do what they say and we're going to you know write our name in this wet cement or <laughs> steal this lip gloss and you know it, it always felt kind of uncomfortable and never quite i don't know it was like a trying on friendships in a way yeah um, I wanted to mention two things. Well, one thing that I really loved about that um, uh, oral history of the crafts piece was so many women mentioned, and I think it was mostly women who were interviewed, if not all, mentioned that in their memories of the crafts, they only remembered the first half of the movie. Yeah. Like, thinking back on it, it was like, yes, I remember it was so empowering, like... Like, there's the shot that's actually on the craft poster where they're just, like, walking and, like, their hair is being blown back. And they just look so cool and confident. And, like, that's what you wanted to feel as a girl. Yeah. Their outfits are amazing in that scene. It's a slow-motion girl gang walk, which you know from teen movies is the best moment. There's, like, two friendship montages in the craft. There's the, like, getting to know each other friendship montage. And then there's the we are a girl gang montage which is the one you're talking about, Ksenia. And everyone kind of blocked out the second half, which is totally the antithesis of what has happened before. I can attest to that, too. I... Before re-watching this movie, I remembered so many parts of it so clearly. Um, the Well, I did remember the hair falling out, um, and I remember the scar removal, and the, uh, the insurance money winning, and this movie was so fresh in my mind, but the dark There's, there was so dark much about turn. bodies in this. I just realized mm-hmm. hair and scars and cutting and... Yeah. 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 The other thing that really struck me about that oral history, though, is how many girls said how sexually charged this movie made them. It made them horny, all of them. They would be at sleepovers watching this movie surrounded by their girlfriends and, like, get really horny. And there's so little interaction between men and women in this. Like, there is, yeah. The main scene is, like, there's the attempted rape, and then there's, like, the scene where um, Farouz's character takes on the face of um, Robin Tunney to try to seduce... Chris. Skeet Earl Rich's Skeet Ulrich. Earl, Earl Rich's character, <laughs> um, and then pushes him out a window. But I think that I think the sexual I think the sort of sexual response comes not from uh, male female relationships, but from female female relationships, and not physical relationships, but kind of spiritual connections. Like mm-hmm. you know how a good friendship can make you feel sort of as fulfilled as a romantic relationship but in a different way friendships make you feel horny no that's not what I'm saying (laughs) no but there's like we're in a library Eleanor (laughs) (laughs) no I'm saying friendships can make you feel like really like gooey inside and it's different from a romantic relationship but I think when you're 13 and you're watching you know these true friendships blossom on screen before it all goes bad uh, those can be misplaced feelings of sexuality mm-hmm. um, because it has the same sort of warmth of like finding love too. Mm-hmm. It's finding fr- friend love. Yeah. Finding any finding power and finding confidence in your sexuality is it like is erotic, especially for a young woman when that's such a dangerous thing to find, such such a difficult thing to find and such a dangerous thing to take on. Mm-hmm. Because when you do, I mean, in the real world, if you are a confident sexual creature and you're like 15 or 16, then you get all kinds of shit. Um, and so to see those, to see the, the, the like girl gang montage and have them being powerful and sexy and together and connected and, you know, braiding each other's hair and touching each other in bedrooms at night, like there's not a lot of physical connection, but they're very close. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, you see actually 
I was thinking about it. Because last night I watched the first half of the movie and I turned it off after the lightning scene because I was like, I don't need to, I remember what happens, it's loud, there's snakes, like I don't need to watch the rest of this now. Yeah. Um, but this scene where they kind of do the deepest spell work is they're touching each other, uh, Sarah's braiding Rochelle's hair, and Nancy is moving her hands over the scars on Bonnie's back. Um, and there's a closeness there that is the, the painfulness of the bait and switch of this movie is what every time I've, I I do the same thing where I haven't seen it in a while and I'm like, yeah, the craft is actually pretty fun. It's cool. And then I watch it again and I just get depressed yeah. because it's such a um, it's such a trick, I think. I feel like even these friendships are an illusion. It's like, I, I mean, I didn't have these female circles uh, when I was younger, but it's like it's a bait and switch because if you were if you had female friends it's not like you were allowed to touch or like have that kind of intimacy really um like the craft shows I think a lot of those friendships were a lot there was a lot more anxiety and like fear and backstabbing. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Which maybe is why the movie is like more real for a lot of people because that was their experience. Mm-hmm. I, think the, I think the trust between the girls, at least in the first half of the movie when everything's butterflies and, uh, you know, and magic, um, the trust between them is part of what creates that intimacy too, is they are telling each other their deepest, darkest secrets, the things that, you know, make them feel like less than and, and make them feel others exactly and and having that trust among each other is such a powerful thing especially to have that with one person is special let alone having that among a group of four people to all mm-hmm. feel that with each other like no wonder they could conjure magic mm-hmm. in the world of the movie um and then i think we should um at least briefly skip to the end where um like what is that lesson supposed to be? Because in the end, Farouz's character is in a mental ward, and Sarah, um, Robin Tunney's character, is sort of the winner, I guess. She's, she has succeeded, um, and she still has... In not her, dying? In not dying. <laughs> uh, and I guess she's moving away again. And the other two witches, uh, Nev and Rachel True have lost their powers yes. and are sort of, uh, again, like lost and powerless in, you know, metaphorically and literally. So like, oh, and I guess the last thing is Sarah like creates sort of a storm to show them that she still has powers. And mm-hmm. to sort of scare them from yeah. trying anything. Like at one point they were infiltrating each other well they were infiltrating Sarah's dreams and Sarah has a kind of throwaway line that um suggests she has maybe started infiltrating Bonnie and Rochelle's dreams Mm -hmm. I think she says like oh how are you guys sleeping at night now Mm -hmm. um so there's a lot of guilt that is saddled on these girls by the end of the movie so she's the good one but she there's so much evil in that but I I also oh sorry oh yeah well I, I I was thinking the one um, revenge that's rewarded in this movie is that against close friends. Is, that's what we're talking about now, that she has earned this power mm-hmm. by virtue of being a natural witch, by virtue of being unwilling at first, I think, to join this circle uh, of being a virgin, you know, of have, she's the only one with the maternal figure, figure in the movie. She has a dead mother as well as the magic shop lady who takes care of her and connects her back to the spirit of her mother. Uh, she's the only one who reaches out for male companionship in the film. Oh, that's so true. Uh, everyone else is all dealing with other women or dealing with themselves. And even though she uh, suffers by putting a love spell on this hot, I'm doing finger quotes. (laughs) This hot guy, that's a signifier that she's straight, I think. Right. Um, Whereas the sexual orientation of the other three girls is not really touched on so much. It's always ambiguous. I mean, they're called lesbians by kids at school as a insult, as like to show their outcastness. 
but I don't think we should take that as any yeah. any comment the movie has on their, what their sexuality may actually be. Mm-hmm. The absence, though, is uh, is interesting, um, and yeah, just the the fact that Sarah ends up the winner, uh, deserving of powers and shaming, putting down, and even institutionalizing kind of the other three mm-hmm. by the end of the film. Does she move away from Los Angeles? It looked like she was packing up towards the end. Maybe. I, I don't know. I feel like in so many of these movies, it's like the new girl who shows up and then moves away yeah. at the end. As, as someone who moved a lot, um, I find that trope really interesting. As someone from California, I find it very interesting that she goes to L.A., deals with all this shit, and then leaves. So L.A. <laughs> LA in films is, uh-huh. you know, this kind and of... And lives in that weird, spooky house mm-hmm. that Which I think is so not L.A. I think right. part of the set of that house was also used in Buffy the Vampire Slayer for oh. Giles' house. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, and I... I I think it was just like from a prop house. I think the door and the walls with the creepy sconces were exactly what was used in Buffy. And a lot of, to be honest, this movie actually watching it again, being kind of like a Buffy fanatic as I am, reminded me a lot of Buffy in its kind of use of power and witchcraft. Obviously, there's two very powerful witch characters in Buffy and it's perhaps women a, battling each other. Yeah, per, perhaps it's another conversation, but there's. I, I felt like Buffy as I was watching this movie. I Buffy. wanted to say that in my community, in my like religious community upbringing, Buffy and the craft were the two biggest cultural touch points that huh. people obsessed over. Some people loved the craft, some people hated it, it was contentious, but everybody loved Buffy. Everybody, all the pagan conventions I went to, there were like Buffy fan clubs and like fan nights and people would dress up. And I didn't start watching Buffy until maybe a year or two ago. Uh, It's wonderful. But I always knew what was happening in the show because everybody would talk about Spike and Willow and And what was going on with them. That makes me really happy to hear that, actually. Yeah, it's a really big deal. I think we should talk about Uzi's party a little bit, and then maybe we can come back to the craft or like interweave it. Sure. But I have a theory. Yes. Okay. And Uzi's party, as a reminder, is Lyra's film. Yes. Lyra's short film that is uh, being released to the world soon. Yes, it's uh, in post right now. The sound soundtrack was just finished yesterday. Very exciting. Yay. And I'll be mixing it in the coming weeks, submitting it to festivals starting at the end of May. So hopefully it will be released to festival audiences in the fall and spring. And Ksenia and I got a little kind of rough cut preview. Yeah. That yeah. was a pretty much that was a pretty much the final cut, but there's no sound, there's no score in the version you guys and saw. And please keep us in the loop when our listeners will be able to see it uh, in person or online, Absolutely. wherever. So what's your theory? So watching the craft and Uzi's party made me think about horror film in general. I mean, I know they're not explicitly horror, but there's scary movie. Let's just put it in that category. Um, I didn't watch a lot of scary movies I, I like as a kid or as a grown-up. Um, so maybe this is a theory that has already been out there by <laughs> uh, people who know that genre of cinema. But, like... It, so long I've associated horror with men, like male filmmakers, male viewers, like I thought of it as in the realm of the male. But the more I think about it, the more I think it belongs to women and like femininity because there's so much fear and anxiety that is tied in explicitly with womanhood. Like everything from body horror, like um, menstruation to childbirth to like anxieties of being alone, you know, not married, being ugly, um, domestic abuse. Like we are raised to be anxious about all these things as women, whereas like men um, are supposed to be adventurous and active and go and do and not be scared and like we as women are supposed to be automatically fearful and so many of these things are played on in horror movies like mm-hmm. 
metaphorically or literally. And so even if there are no prominent female characters in a horror movie, I think like femininity is in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think your film touches on a few of those things. Thank you, yeah. I, I, maybe I should describe the film. But I wanted to say to your point that I, I do think you're absolutely correct. And specifically the, the idea of a feminine as a void or a vessel, an, a hidden kind of unseen thing from which dangers can arise that is like a dark, wet place where unknown monsters lurk. It's not only women being afraid in general, but men being afraid of of entering women, mm-hmm. of of falling into that, or you know, like vagina dentata, for mm-hmm. example, or this kind of return to the womb idea. Or, um, and we should. I want to touch on uh, maybe a, later this book that you should read called Men, Women, and Chainsaws: Gender in the Modern Horror Film. It's mm. fantastic. There's four chapters. One chapter is about slasher films. One is about possession. Do you have to know a lot of these movies to enjoy the book? No? No. I'm shaking my head. Sounds great. (laughs) It's really, really good, and she talks a lot about that. uh, Possession, the whole possession chapter is very important to me because that's what happens in Uzi's party, kind of. Uh, It's about five young women who gather for a party at Feruza, a.k.a. Uzi's house, and uh, it's the anniversary of one of their mother's deaths. There are five different kind of stereotypical characters. They perform um, the Ouija board as the point of the party. That's why they're getting together. There's also makeovers, as any teen girl movie must have. Including the craft. Yes. I love the makeover scenes. They're just close-up shots of nails being painted and lipstick being applied. And just even like the clutter of, of... the makeover, yeah. like I, yeah, I got a real charge from that. I think <laughs> so did just, I. <laughs> just like the nail polish piled up, and this eyeshadow would suit you. Um, mm-hmm. And part of that, as we'll get into momentarily, has to do with the effects that you used to make this film possible. Um, so there was something unsettling, kind of right below the surface of uh, the nail paint of one ha- pair of hands painting the other pair of hands and it was shot on 16 millimeter correct yes it was all shot on 16 millimeter and we'll just say it well we're sort of dancing around (laughs) the reveal all of the characters are played by the same actress who's my little sister um and so all of the effects are done in camera on 16 millimeter film which is totally insane it's a totally (laughs) insane thing to do i'm a crazy person lightest clue how you did it um, kind of, it's like it's magic. The, it is that is magic too. Yes, I do. I feel very strongly that film is is magical, and so um, it's nice. And my ex boyfriend feels that way too. Hey, shout out to my ex boyfriend, uh, who's a filmmaker. And um, anyway, <laughs> but <laughs> shout out to all our ex boyfriends. Uh, hey, hey guys. Though so the movie, the aesthetic of the film is very kind of seventies pulpy horror. Noir. Uh, a lot of it takes place in a very dark room. So sometimes mm-hmm. it's almost just faces kind of floating. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of shot from right kind of beneath, which mm-hmm. gives that kind of tall, kind of men- almost menacing image to these girls. In the, in the Ouija scene, yeah. yeah. All, all furniture disappears, and the only shots in the Ouija scene are the hands on the board and these close-ups... Uh, with a completely uh, unrealistic, impossible lighting. Before that, the the house is very spooky and there's just kind of void everywhere and then the hint of a corner of a cabinet or a Tiffany lamp. There's a lot of beautiful lamps in the film. Um, Part of that is for the the mood, but also it was a, um, a necessary effect for multiple exposures and matting between frames um, because all of that darkness was places where I could cut the mat and block out a character and then rewind the film and block out the other half and shoot it again. Um, there were also a lot of mirrors. Yes. Yes. And mirrors as a, as a trope in, or not even a trope, but mirrors as a image, as a thing in horror movies 
is so scary to me. And there's a lot of mirrors in the craft too. Can I can I just say like I still can't be in a dark room with a mirror. Me either. Like, I just, <laughs> oh my god, I, Bloody Mary! I can't. I like I there's pretty much nothing else that scares me that much. Yes, it's terrifying. I completely agree. I mean, in the craft at one point, Sarah emerges from a mirror. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, there's actually a lot of mirror tricks. There's um, Bonnie and Rochelle look at themselves in the mirror and see the horror that they've Im- uh, uh, inflicted on other people on them. At one point, Rochelle is looking in the mirror and it's the same shot. It's it's, it's not a reflection. I noticed that style last night, where it's all it's the back of her head mm-hmm. in the mirror as she's looking into it, and it's the motion of her mirror image is staggered. And yeah, that's I noticed that last night for the first that, time. That is such a nice detail. Like mm-hmm. I would not have expected that in a teen movie. And yeah. their mirror a mirror plays very climactically in Uzi's party too. Yes, yes it does. Is that is that a real thing? Does it does that tie in with paganism? Mirrors, mirrors, or, or is that something that was sort of tied in by popular culture? I think I think mirrors are more just tied to horror in general, and mm-hmm. the idea of mirrors as a as something magical, mm-hmm. vampires and mirrors, mm-hmm. um, breaking a mirror, superstitions about mirrors. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very useful in Uzi's party because they're all the same woman, and so when you see two different characters, they re- look remarkably different. My sister is a wonderful actress, so as I was saying before we started recording, a few people who have seen this never actually realized that they were all played by the same person. Um, but when you have a shot of the two characters looking at each other, that's also a mirror, even though there's no mirror prop in the film. Oh, and and yeah. then there are these moments, there's two moments where uh, the fourth wall is broken where the characters will look in a mirror at the camera. Um, so yeah, it's a useful, I think mirrors are, yeah, they're just creepy. So, okay. and, and because of the larger conceit of the film, that maybe this is all one person, um, that's, I think they're important in that sense. You were mentioning possession as, huh. a, as a main theme of Uzi's party. Yeah. Was that... I guess, what is it about possession that interests you and what makes it such a powerful event? Uh, Well, partially because of my own experiences with possession and invocation and kind of like spiritual overwhelming and feeling of like channeling things, which actually ties in. Which you do in your performances. Exactly. The, The performance that Eleanor and I saw of yours last year is at Brooklyn Brain Frame number one. I don't like I think it's one of the most incredible things I have seen (laughs) I will second that actually (laughs) um and it is like I mean you are acting but it feels like you are possessed and I I almost hate to say that there is a YouTube video of it because that doesn't do the performance service at all but I think that would be the way that somebody could experience it if you watch it turn everything else off, turn the lights off. Close the blinds and yeah. turn up the sound like, really loud. Get under a big sheet <laughs> so you can have just like a smidgen of what it was like the to be effect. in that room. And it was a performance of your comic Get Go Down. Go Down, Go Down. which is also about sex, female sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, so possession is something that I feel that resonates in my own life as an artist. It's, it's one of my artistic tools uh, it's, I'm fascinated by depictions of possession. I'm making a mini comic series called Possession Scenes where I draw, um, where I draw possession scenes. I've done The Mask and The Exorcist and Twin Peaks. Um, and in this book that I mentioned, the, the chapter on possession is so fascinating. It gave me a lot of insights into my own interest. Uh, she talks, this a female wrote the book. She writes about, um, possession films as focusing actually, like usually the main character is a woman who is kind of crazy to begin with and then goes really, really crazy. There's body horror, she's throwing up or bleeding, or there's a lot of kind of like positions of childbirth or positions of menstruation or like vomiting, kind of expulsions, things coming out through skin. Uh, But the actual act in the film is a transformation by the central male character. And her hypothesis is that 
possession films feature around these women going to such incredibly emotional, spiritual, and physical extremes so that the male main character can find his own femininity without being emasculated. Which, I mean, which is also shown in so many other movies. Like, I, I wrote a piece about um, the dying girl trope, uh, which is, like, the same exact thing. Like, she is dying, and she is the motive for change for the man, so mm -hmm. he becomes more free and, like, right. loves life more. And then like, she, love story like, and goes off, New York. Yeah, goes Autumn off into the fog, and we never see her again. Right. The Manic Pixie Dream Girl is a trope that also is a, a certain type of woman whose sole purpose is to... Uh, act as a catalyst of change and self-discovery for the male. Right. There, these these ideas of women sort of being um, like an accessory to a man's journey of self-discovery mm -hmm. is everywhere. Yeah. Um, and in terms of possession, like, isn't it also about a little bit about role play and like ties in with adolescence in general? Like, I mean, for one thing, women have to play you know, the role of wife and mother mm -hmm. and daughter and sister. And like, maybe, I don't know how to phrase this eloquently, but it's like learning to practice those things and like mimicking and miming the things that we see is a kind of little possession. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then like, when we're adolescents, but it's a similar thing. We're like, we don't know what we are. Um, and sometimes there's a lot of hormones. So you feel like you can't control, but you're also, again, miming and mimicking and trying to play grown up or, you know, witch or whatever to find who you actually are. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, that's really interesting. I think that that's true of, of uh, acting as possession, um, which is another reason I, I find it fascinating in films because any acting is an is a act of possession, right? And um, maybe I, th I think this is a really broad statement, but <laughs> maybe the most threatening thing a, a woman can do in like a patriarchal society is to find herself and to fully embody herself uh, and be uncompromising and confident in her, in herself and her power and possession. Being so, so the idea of a woman as open and receptive and as acting and um, changing and being all of these different things is is a way to keep from this unity of self uh, from becoming someone who doesn't question or is not. Um, influenced by manipulation and uh, shame and all of those kinds of mm -hmm. things. Uh, which is why, so, especially this thing about men in acting, uh, women as, acting as catalysts for male characters in film is a really big reason why Uzi's party has no men in it. Um, and actually only has one woman in it. The last line of the movie, so the, uh, there's kind of a drama, there's also like a lesbian tension in Uzi's party which is my favorite part. There's a make-out scene. There's a make-out scene. I love the kiss. I don't want to, I kind of don't want to spoil it. I don't think it, we should the, reveal the details. Okay. But the kiss was, oh, it was happening. It was like, oh, <laughs> great. Yeah, it's, it's really I, I weird. Just holding my breath like during the, the entire thing. Um, so the, but then the, they get back together after this drama goes down and they do the Ouija board and the spirit in the board is significant. Uh, then things just kind of get crazy. Um, and Uzi, the main character and the host of the party, stands up and says, which of these women is not herself? And runs to the bathroom and then makes out with the mirror and has a descent into, into possession, kind of. I, I, I hesitate actually to call it possession because mm -hmm. I don't know, I say that she is possessed, but I think everybody is possessed or nobody is possessed in the movie. And I've gotten a lot of really different reads on this film. One woman was absolutely convinced that it was all about masturbation and that the end of the movie is Uzi masturbating against the sink. 
Um, I and didn't then notice that. She was that like well. pressing herself. Yeah. And then like her thought was at the very end of the film, which is a kind of strange mystical return to all four characters overlapping, mm-hmm. um, was her like moment of orgasm. Mm-hmm. Um, which is awesome. That's not what I was thinking, but I'm really glad somebody I mean, there's that. definitely release, even if it's not about that. There, there's buildup and there's release. Yeah. There's also... A, I don't know if this is a well-thought-out-enough theory, but things that were floating through my head as I was watching it is, you know, the the very deliberate choice to have the same actress play all five women um, calls into question, for me at least, are they five different girls? Or are they five different sides of the same girl who is reeling after having her mother die, which is a hugely traumatic and significant event and you know trying to call her spirit and uh, connect with her and having these five very different kind of parts of herself at war with one another um, as a reaction to losing her mother is something that I certainly saw in the movie of you know trying to put the pieces of her back together, trying to figure out who she is with the absence Mm -hmm. of sort of the number one maternal figure in her life, the number one female figure in her life. Um, It's sort of like a, yeah, like a who am I? And as they're reading the Ouija board, and I have to say the shots of all the hands on the board and how it would sort of move slowly and then move really fast and kind of frenetically were just beautifully, beautifully done. Their nail polish being different colors (laughs) was a great touch. Yeah. Thank you. I that, like that there were, oh, sorry. Oh, no, I just, I, I do, that was uh, something, that is something that I think about in the film um, a lot, whether or not they're the same person. I think for me, they all are, they all are one character, let alone one actress. Um, and the, my ex-boyfriend, who I mentioned earlier, also watched this, and we had a great conversation about it. He said, this movie is so nice, it feels to me that it's all about self-love, uh, mm-hmm. which nobody had, had really put it that way, of but I think he was getting the same thing that you're talking about, where it's an effort to reunite or an effort to uh, reach compromise and find joy again mm-hmm. through these kind of disparate personalities. Yeah. And I, I, I did love the sort of girliness of it <laughs> the, with the, make, the piles of uh, pastel makeup. Unabashed girliness. Yeah. And, and, you know, and done such in a way unlike the Hollywood teen movies that we're used to where makeup and makeovers and girliness is, you know, kind of reaching your peak femininity. I feel like in Uzi's party, it is, um, you know, it is like kind of possessing yourself in a way, kind of putting on a mask, um, but also in a necessary way. Mm -hmm. You know, I haven't really thought about this. Uh, I'm realizing now that most movies with makeover scenes, there's a montage later where the makeover is revealed and it's like, oh, look, she's changed. She's more powerful now. Mm-hmm. She gets the guy. And in Uzi's party, the makeovers are kind of a joke. Like somebody rolls mm-hmm. her eyes about it in the beginning. The one complete makeover that happens is totally ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's never mentioned again after they happen. It's just part, part of the experience of these girls mm-hmm. coming together. It's mm-hmm. not a before and after. It's just during. It's what you do. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a real makeover. <laughs> so it really is. Had I watched Uzi's party at a sleepover um, in high school, in middle school, um, I would have felt similarly as I did to the craft, which was kind of like fear and excitement at the same time, where I'm like really freaked out by what I'm seeing, but also kind of intrigued and excited enough about it that it's just it stays with you. Mm-hmm. The craft has stayed with me. I think Uzi's party will stay with me. Um, they're very, it's affecting imagery. And this conversation has actually helped me figure out why <laughs> those sorts of scenes in movies are so like affecting for me and for, I'm sure, others listening as well. Mm-hmm. And one of the last thing that I'll say about the craft and Uzi's party is a comment my mother made when I sent her the rough cut, which was, uh, in Uzi's party, all of the props are very specific, and there's only very few. There's like a few stupid candles, and a bag of chips, and the makeup. My mother said, I loved how few props they had. That's really what it's like. You don't need all those stupid candles, and spell books, and animals like they have in the craft. My, that was her favorite part about Uzi's party. Fewer props. Fewer props. And the, the 
the power of magic in a space where you don't need all that accoutrement. Mm-hmm. Accoutrement. <laughs> the power comes from within. <laughs> yeah. You, everyone's a natural witch. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Um, Lyra, thanks so much for coming on to talk about yeah. witchcraft and the craft and Uzi's party with us on Bonnie and Maud. Thank you so much. This has been very enlightening for me as well. And it's good to see you. You're uh, visiting from Chicago, so yep. come back again. You will. <laughs> um, Brain Frame is happening a couple more times in 2014 in Chicago, mm-hmm. and um, people can check that out on the internet, I'm sure. Yes. There's a big finale, third anniversary, three is the magic number, third anniversary on August 9th. If anybody wants to travel to see Brain Frame, that's, what, that's when they should go. Yes, and Kasteni uh, and I have now each experienced two brain frames and uh they're very special so try to go Mm -hmm. Um, you will become possessed (laughs) bonnie and maude is on twitter and facebook and tumblr our username is bonnie and maude for all of them so it's pretty easy to find Mm -hmm. you can also listen to us did you say itunes i did not say itunes you can also listen to us on itunes and stitcher and bonnieandmaude.com you can stream them right from our website If you guys are digging what you're listening to, if you have feedback, please leave us a comment or please rate us on iTunes. Um, It actually really helps people who would also be into uh, a discussion about film, a discussion about women in film uh, to help find our podcast. So please rate us, please leave a comment. Um, It'll help spread the word about the show, um, especially if you like what we're doing. And we totally want to hear your feedback, um, things that you would love to hear us cover. Email us at bonnieandmaud at gmail.com. For Bonnie and Maud, I've been Eleanor Kagan. And I'm Xenia Yarosh. Thanks for listening. Oh, the one thing about the craft that we didn't mention, uh-huh. uh, which is maybe just a throwaway thought, is that um, the end when all the critters start invading the maggots and the cockroaches and the rats and the snakes, it was like a New Yorker's nightmare. I was like in an apartment being like, oh God, they just need bed bugs in this scene. And then it's like literally real life <laughs> in New York in apartments. <laughs> <sighs>